Um, now, jumping into the text and the teaching for today, uh, if I can just start with a little bit of my own story. Um, over the course of my own spiritual journey, uh, I pretty regularly live with a sense of having disappointed God. That's pretty common in, in my life. Um, sometimes it's due to not being quite spiritual enough, not being quite good enough. Hey, Dennis, I got one more right here. Um, so it could be that I'm not quite good enough, or it could be like behavioral failures or things that I'm trying to stop. And, and the, like all of those things, I'm not quite doing enough spiritual things, or I'm doing too many of the bad things that I don't want to do. And all that leads me in this kind of like pretty regular place where I feel as though I've disappointed God. And so I regularly have this question in the back of my head, well, how do I get right with God? How do I make it up to him? How do I get good again? How do I like distance myself from the, the things that I want to stop and like get back onto the streak of success? Now, often I do this um, subconsciously, right? It's kind of in the background. I'm not totally aware of it, but it's there. But sometimes I do it very cognitively. And I'm trying to work out this system that's a bit like a negotiation that's like putting me back in good status. Would you give me a nod if this relates to your life at all? Okay. Seeing a lot of head bobbing. Thank you for your honesty. If I could be honest to one more level, in those moments of negotiation, I realize that God's perspective, God's voice is of some concern for me, right? I, I love him. I want to please him. I want to do right by him. But if I'm like really honest and kind of like paying attention, the primary voice in my head is my own. The primary voice in that conversation is mine, not God's. So my, it's, it's my own inner critic that's telling me to do better, to ante up, to you better not do that again next time, or I promise I won't do it again next time. That is the primary voice in that conversation. And if I listen to your head nods, um, what I'm describing is a real problem, not only for me, but for you also. It's a pattern that we live in. In this pattern, we are self-identifying the problem, and we self-construct the thing to fix it. Now, you might not use this language, I don't think I would, but what we're actually all doing is we're constructing a system of mediation between God and man. And the primary voice in that mediation is our own. So we identify the problem and we set the solution. Now, unsurprisingly, when our voice is the primary one, we will misidentify the problem as well as its source, and then we will misconstruct the solution or the mediation. So if we do this, right, it's going to take us down two paths, likely, right? The first one is going to be spiritual exhaustion or spiritual frustration. And in spiritual exhaustion or spiritual frustration, if you do that long enough, you're going to end up either mad at something else or mad at yourself, right? I'm going to be angry, mad outwardly. I'm going to be mad that God's always making me not feel quite good enough, and I'm so fed up with him that I'm going to learn to resent him, or I will try to hold on to him while then reconstructing my own interpretation of him. We see this a lot in today's culture. We hold on to God while abandoning all faith and moral tradition. Or we will get mad inwardly. Rather than being mad at God, I will take on toxic shame for myself that says, I'm just worthless. I'm never good enough. How could God love me? And we will resent ourselves for our inability to do it yet again. So path one, spiritual frustration and exhaustion. Path two, artificial success. Hey, if I just do this, 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 then I'm good. I'm on the right footing with God. And then I do it. I'm on the right footing with God. And now we're in this artificial sense that I've done it. 
And this will lead us even subtly to pride. And even subtly, we will begin to condemn others for not being able to do it as well as we can. You're still having problems? You haven't gotten over it yet? Well, have you just tried? Have you tried harder, right? These are the voices in our head. And this will make our relationships performance-based. It will make them high stakes because it is always attached to failure or success. And it will make our hearts judgmental. Sound good to anyone? Anyone want to opt in, sign on the dotted line? Let's, let's go. This sounds great. No, but we often do get stuck in this pattern, right? I do. This is often a pattern that I find uh, in my own heart. So today's opportunity, why today's teaching matters, this is an opportunity to receive the presence and the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth as gospel good news. Because it will further, not totally, but further root out this destructive pattern and it will further replace it with living in the beautiful grace of Christ. That's why this matters. If we listen to his voice, we will begin to trust his identification of our problem as well as his proposed solution to our failures and our shortcomings. So here's today's roadmap as we get into the text. First, we're going to do a real fast highlight of chapter 14, the end of it. Um, And what we're going to see is this beautiful display of full-hearted faith. And then we're going to move into chapter 15, and we're going to separate that into two sections. uh, Verses 1 through 9, big idea is that Jesus frees humanity from trying to build our own system of mediation. He frees us from having to build our own system of mediation. And then the second part from 10 to 20 is this reality that the dreadful truth is our problem. The problem of our defilement and our separation is much deeper and more severe than we ever thought possible because of where it is sourced. Then we're going to end today by pulling all of that together, those three big themes, the theme of faith from the end of 14, the theme of mediation from the first part of 15, and the theme of defilement from the second part of 15. We'll pull that all together at the end. Would you pray with me real fast? Father, as we move into this teaching, um, would you help us see your son, Jesus Christ, as a redeemer and a savior and a teacher, a teacher who shows us what is real, and saves us from our own uh, self-delusions. Would you come to us with mercy and truth today? Amen. So uh, chapter 14, it's going to feel a little bit like a tag onto the rest of what we're doing today until the very end. But as we are um, following the broader narrative of Matthew, we're going to see in the end of chapter 13, Jesus goes to the town of Nazareth. You guys remember this part? He goes to Nazareth, and everyone there is like, oh, well, yeah, you're the carpenter's son, right? And, oh, yeah, I know your mom. She's Mary. And then the people respond by saying, and you think you're the son of God? Like, I, 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 I babysat you. Like, you're not the son of God. And, and so because of these per- people's um, misinterpretation of Jesus, as well as their misexpectations of him, they refuse to see him, and they refuse to receive him as he really is. They refuse to see him for who he really is and refuse to receive him for who he really is. Then moving into chapter 14, we have two miracles that put back on display who is this man. They give us new vision for who he is. The first miracle in chapter 14 was the feeding of the 5,000. This is what Jeremy preached on a couple weeks ago. And we see that what Matthew is doing in this miracle is he's, he's teeing up Jesus as this better Moses figure. You guys have probably heard that a lot. Here's kind of what that means in layman's terms. Moses did a couple things, right? He, he had a couple things in his role for Israel. He revealed God's voice. He mediated between God and man as a priest. He provided godly leadership. 
He provided practical provision as well as godly solutions and strategies for this nation as they were developing and trying to follow God. So Jesus is coming to fulfill all of humanity's need for those things. He's fulfilling in a greater sense God's need, or excuse me, humanity's need for a revelation of God's voice, a mediation between God and man, godly leadership, godly provision, godly solutions. He's fulfilling all those things in a greater context. That's what's set up in the feeding of the 5,000. Second miracle is where Jesus walks on water. And if you guys were here uh, when Rick taught on this, you remember that his disciples saw him walking on water. They saw him in a more complete way. And when that happened, it prompted their worship. It prompted the pro- proclamation that Jesus really is the Son of God. They were able to see him differently, more completely, and receive him more completely as a result, proclaiming re- he really is the Son of God. Now, we're, now we're getting into today's teaching where Jesus lands at Gennesaret. I don't actually know how to say that. Me and some of the hosts were talking earlier. <laughs> we're going to go with Gennesaret. Um, we see that he lands there, and interestingly, he is seen and received for who he really is as the Son of God. And so this causes people's faith where they, they go to the countryside, they're proclaiming, hey, Jesus is here. Everyone come to this man for restoration. Come to this man for healing. And then they themselves go expectantly with faith. And it's this beautiful little capstone to the chapter in the couple sections prior, all dealing with sight and faith. We come off of Nazareth, rejected. Hey, here's two miracles of who he really is. He feeds the 5,000. He's a better Moses. He walks on water. His disciples worship him. And then he lands with this little capstone and everyone believes in him. And look at what happens. People's lives are transformed. So that's the little capstone. And that is it for chapter 14 for now. Now we're going to move into 15 where Jesus is teaching. But what's happening here is Jesus is continuing to fulfill that he is a mouthpiece for God. He is a better Moses. He is revealing God's voice as he's rightly interpreting and then applying God's instruction from the Old Testament. God gave the law through Moses, and here God is clarifying and fulfilling the law through Jesus. So let's get into verses 1 through 9. I'll have it up on the screen. I'm going to do kind of a high level. Here's what's happening. So what's happened is some Jewish leaders and some teachers have come from Jerusalem, the the capital of religious authority and enlightenment, and they've come to challenge Jesus based on this, the conduct of his followers. And they basically say, why do your disciples break our purity tradition when they eat? They're not washing their hands. They are defiling themselves with dirty hands when they eat. Now, this question makes a lot of sense because they're not actually talking about dirt, right? It's, you know, sure, there might be some gross stuff they got to wash off. What they're really talking about is spiritual cleanliness. Um, in the Old Testament, a large part of the law given through Moses, right, the voice of God at that time, had to do with ceremonial purity and cleanliness. And so uh, th- there was a lot of law around washing your hands. The priests were required to do it. And then after that law, the Jewish people had several thousand years of faith tradition where they were refining and building Um, these kind of new codes of conduct that in their mind refined their daily habits to match or surpass biblical expectations. Now, at first blush, like, that sounds really great, right? If, If you gave me, like, biblical expectations, I'd probably go, great, how do I match them or surpass them? Not, how do I get kind of close but fall a little bit short, right? That's not a great strategy if you take these things seriously. So this is, like, an attempt at wise living. But then Jesus hits pause on their question, and he asks his own question. 
And he's not just being dodgy, he's not avoiding. What he's really doing is he's asking his own question in order to get to the real heart of the matter. And he says, why do you let people break God's law for in favor of your tradition? Do you guys see what's happening? He's saying, hey, you've flip-flopped something. In your desire to honor the law, you've built tradition on top of it, but you've done this in the process. And the example he gives, this is kind of intended to be like one of the things you're doing. It's not just the one, it's one of. He gives an example from the fifth of the Ten Commandments. This is out of Exodus 20. Uh, The fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. He then pairs that with a more nuanced extension of that law from Exodus 21 about reviling, cursing, or dishonoring your parents. So fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Later in Exodus, don't revile, curse, or dishonor your parents. Now, In this traditional agrarian society, honoring your parents mattered, of course, because of your relationship with them, right? Honoring them in your heart, being kind to them, being respectful, obeying them, right? That clearly mattered. But then it was like really obviously meant to go beyond that to where I actually cared for the needs of my parents, right? (laughs) I actually cared for my parents, especially in the matters of old age in an agrarian society. Now, in modernized countries, yes, we are, even in Post Falls, uh, we have Social Security, we have Medicaid, we have retirement accounts, we have nursing homes, right? We've developed all of these social structures um, that make families, interestingly, less dependent on one another. And that's actually like a really great safety net. That's not all bad. A lot of us have really broken families and children who do abandon their parents or parents who do abandon their children. We need all of these social things. But in a biblical context, Even in modern, underdeveloped countries, this is true, your retirement care is your children. You do not have a 401k. At best, you have like a little box under your mattress. Your retirement is your children. So here in this agrarian context, the command to honor your father and mother, to not revile or turn your back on your honor your father and mother, This is about attitude, but it's also physically not abandoning them in their old age. So what Jesus is like really quickly doing in his reference here is he's exegeting. He's pulling out that God has a very high value of family relationships that are loving, reciprocal, and faithful. God loves family relationships built on high esteem for one another that then follow through with practical and financial care. It would seem that that is God's heart in Exodus. So God's heart is integrated care and action. And Jesus is saying, look, you have under-prioritized this by placing it beneath your man-made tradition. And the tradition here being referenced is less about finances. It's not just, oh, well, you're supposed to give all your money to the church. Um, It's primarily about um, tradition around oaths. So it could have been financially motivated, right? You've got these greedy priests who are like, yeah, promise all your money to the church. It probably wasn't that, though it might have been. Um, The tradition here is about oath keeping, and we'll explain that more in a little bit. Now, the the application that they've uh, created based on this tradition around oaths is they've said that you can tell your father or your mother what you would have gotten from me, what would have been your retirement benefits from me caring for you. I have given it to God. And there's a specific word from Aramaic named Corbin. Corbin. I have Corbined it. I have vowed that this will go to God or be used for God. Now, someone could um, make a vow like that 
and not necessarily intend to follow through with it. But in the eyes of the legal tradition, you've, you've promised that it will go to God. And you cannot then use those resources for anything else. So if you want to use those resources to provide for the people that God's put in your life that you're responsible for, if you give them what has been made Corbin, you will break religious tradition because you are breaking your oath. You've, you've oathed to God. Are you going to break your promise to God? So we can see, like, this isn't just a quick dismissive, like, oh yeah, they're all just idiots. No, this is, like, there's a sincerity at the surface level that they're trying to uphold. But then Jesus comes in and he really boldly says, your tradition seems really spiritual on the surface. It seems really holy and wise-hearted, but it's actually making void the word of God. It is literally working opposite of God's heart in the world. And Jesus is anchoring his critique in scripture and he uses the language of the prophet Isaiah. And he says this, he quotes Isaiah um, in verses eight through nine. He says, quoting from Isaiah, quote, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines or the voice of God, the commandments of men. Jesus is making clear two things. First, it is possible to say all the right things and have a heart that has no true love or intimacy with God. Entirely possible. Second thing he's saying is that worship and religion become empty and pointless when we pretend human messages come from the mouth of God. And at first glance, I just have to ask, like, do we do this? especially knowing like we're a church, we're coming out of a reformed tradition, we can be really staunch about what God has and has not said. And we can lord that over people because they do things a little bit differently. And so I have to wonder what is the tradition that we've built up and, and like confidently will say, this is the voice of God, no questions asked. And so first glance for me makes me be real careful what I think is a great idea versus what I think God's voice has said. So let's interpret what Jesus has just talked about here. So that's all what's happening. What's, what does it mean? First, I want to give the Pharisees some more credit by explaining their rationale to how they came to this conclusion, because they're not idiots. Modern-day Jewish rabbis are not idiots. They have a re- reason for what they believe. Then after that, I want to give interpretation of what I think Jesus' primary point is. So first, um, the, the rabbis here were building this oath tradition off of a couple places in the Old Testament, but the one I'm going to reference because it's so, so, so black and white is Numbers 30. It'll be up on the screen. This is from Moses. Remember, Moses, the mouthpiece of God in the Old Testament. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, this is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now that feels pretty black and white, right? Can't really like wiggle anything in there. And it feels super honest. Like that just, that just seems good. Let's not break our promises to God or one another, right? That, that seems like a functional, healthy society to me. I don't think any of us are like, oh, that's a bad teaching. It is great teaching, super important. But just like the Pharisees, um, Old Testament Jews had taken that and like applied it in, in like all like the worst unfortunate ways. 
Shortly after the book of Numbers comes the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 11, there's this man who's, who's wanting to become a leader in Israel. And so the elders of Israel come to him and they say, hey, Jephthah, if you win this battle for us and you kick out the Ammonites, we'll make you leader of Israel. And, they, and so they're trying to get him to fight their battles for him. And then the book of Judges says, and the spirit of God was with him. But Jephthah, in this, rather than trusting God, rather than saying, God's with me, I'm going to act out of his plan, he does this. He strikes a one-way bargain. He says, God, I really, really want to make sure you're with me, so if you will be with me, I'll make it up to you. I'm going to sweeten the pot a little bit. You guys ever done anything like this? (laughs) Yeah, you tell me you're faithful, but I'm also going to like add a little bit like, and if you do it, I'll do this too, right? I'm going to sweeten the pot a little bit. If, and Jephthah says, if you help me win, that when I get home, the very first thing I see, I will sacrifice to you. And to Jephthah, this seems really reasonable, right? He's got a guy, he's got a, a large estate, he's got cattle and goats. And so he thinks, when I get to the periphery of my, my territory, I'm going to see a herd of goats. And I'm going to be like, great, that one. All right, let's pull it in. Sacrifice to God. Unfortunately, the very first thing he sees is his only daughter running out with tambourine saying, my daddy's home. Now, Jephthah is distraught, but he follows through with his sacrifice. And here I want to point out, and this will really help you engage with the Old Testament for what it's meant to be, the Old Testament and the book of Judges particularly reports on, but does not encourage foolish superstition and foolish religiosity within people's attempts to follow God. It reports on a lot of terrible things that people try to do in God's name without prescribing that as being a good thing. Because remember, Jephthah's negotiation was one way. God was not chiming in here going like, yeah, that's great, let's shake on it. What's happened is Jephthah did not trust God to follow through on his word. So, Jephthah tried to sweeten the pot with what he thought he had constructed his own extra bonus to make sure God would give him what he wanted. He had constructed his own solution based on a misapplication of Numbers chapter 30. Jephthah, his lips honored God, but his heart was far from him because Jephthah should have known that God would never desire a child sacrifice. His lips were close, his heart was far. So the Pharisees built on the tradition out of numbers, this really clear black and white, if you vow to the Lord, you got to do it. They had built on that tradition by demanding that children dishonor their parents in order to follow through on a superstitious vow. Remember, I promise my, my wealth or the sacrifice to God so he loves me more and I'm willing to go against his heart to follow through on that superstitious vow. It's very, very similar to what happened with Jephthah. Now, if we go all the way back to my introduction about self-identifying the problem and self-constructing the solution, Jesus is showing that what they're basically saying is, the thing that separates me from God is my oath-breaking. Therefore, if I follow through on my oaths, I'm good to go. They've misidentified the problem, right? They think it's the oath-breaking that separates them from God. So they then misconstruct the solution. I won't break oaths. 
even when they're clearly opposite the heart of God. Or they've misidentified the problem. It's your hands are dirty. They will defile you. So then they've misconstructed the solution. So wash your hands ceremonially before you eat, right? Then you're good to go. All of these things feel really spiritual on the surface, but are far from God's heart. You guys remember um, the two paths. When you walk this, it will lead you either to um, spiritual frustration, exhaustion, or artificial success. What do you think the Pharisees were living in right now? A sense of artificial success. We wash our hands. We're good to go. You disciples, you don't wash your hands, right? What, that led them to condemning pride, right? Why can't you do it like us? We're better than you. And the reason I say this is artificial because they think that their solution is working. They're real confident. They're, they just traveled from Jerusalem to have a, a theological debate because they're so confident we're good to go with God because we did it right. But they've misdiagnosed the source of the problem. They've misdiagnosed the source. This leads us to part B, verse 10 through 20. So part A is this idea that we can construct our own mediation between us and God. And Jesus is freeing us from doing that because it doesn't work. Now he's getting into, so where really does the problem lie? How do we really hone in on the source of the problem so we can build a helpful solution? First, Jesus shouts to the crowd. I love this. He's like, hey, everybody, come, listen. I want to make sure you understand this clearly. Please come. And he calls everyone together. And then he says this, quote, it is not what goes into the mouth. It's not your dirty hands that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. So after this, his disciples follow Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, you really offended the Pharisees. Jesus responds, it's okay. They are clearly not planted. They're not rooted in my father. If you want to uh, check out more of that, go to uh, backwards to Matthew chapter 13. There's a parable about weeds. You can read that. And then Jesus concludes by saying, they are blind guides leading the blind. Leave them alone. There's the sense that Jesus knows where they're going. He also knows their unwillingness to be confronted or corrected, and he says, let them be. Then his disciples reapproach him, and they say, okay, but Jesus, can you explain a little bit more the mouth thing? Right. Does, it, does it really not matter what we put into our mouths? <laughs> and, and I'm dad of a one-year-old, and so I immediately think, like, no, it, it does matter. Like, put the Legos down, right? <laughs> And Jesus would seem to agree, but he says, it's, that's not what defiles you. Like, yeah, don't eat bad things, but that's not what defiles you, right? It is not the external things, he's honing in on a source here, it's not the external that separates you from God. Verses one through nine was that you've crafted your own insufficient solution. Here, he's hammering in, that is because you misidentify the source of the problem. It's not what is external. It's not what goes into your mouth, but what comes out. Here, he says in verse 18 and 19, quote, what comes out of the mouth, I add your words and your behaviors, proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. For out of the heart, I add the core of who we are, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Fun sermon, right? 
Well, actually, if we hear Jesus correctly, like it, it absolutely is. This is pure gold here. This, there, there's joy all over these pages because the reason you are spiritually frustrated or exhausted or prideful is because we've misidentified the problem, right? And we've therefore mis- misconstructed an inadequate solution. And none of it is what God's voice has said. Now, in college, just a quick story to illustrate this. In college, I bought a, a dirt bike. It was an old 1992 Honda XR250. Um, now, it was a great bike for a long time. Uh, and uh, it's still in my garage. It doesn't run anymore. So if you would like to help with that, give me a shout out after service. John B's give me the thumbs up. Great. Um, now, the very first time I, I went to change the oil on this, I'm like, you know, 19 years old. I think my dad's like out of town. I'm like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this by myself. And so... I go out in the backyard, I I prop it up on some stands, and I go to loosen the drain bolt for the oil, right? And I'm thinking in my head, okay, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey, right? Sounds easy until you do this. Is it, wait, is that right? No, that's left. No, is it? Right? And so I find myself in this situation, right? And I spend an hour attempting to get this drain bolt off. And after an hour... Um, I find that I have only over-tightened it and stripped it. It's ruined. And there was definitely some externalized anger coming out of my mouth in that hour, right? It ended with spiritual frustration and exhaustion, if I can make that parallel. Now, in that moment, nothing would have been more liberating and joyful for me than if someone came someone who saw things clearly, right? Someone who could rightly identify the problem and give me the right solution. I wished that person to come in two minutes in, right? Oh no, you're doing it wrong. Other way, done, great. The reality is I did not need more time to crank on my dirt bike. I really needed the intervention of a wise teacher. That is what Jesus is offering here both to the Pharisees, both to the crowds listening to him, as well as to his disciples, and I would lump you into this, and me, to his disciples who are trying to follow him. Now, if we hone in on this particular part of Jewish teaching, the misinterpretation is, if you want to unscrew your drain bolt, turn righty-tighty. Wash your hands. Just wash your hands. That's what you got to do. And that's just not true. It just doesn't describe reality. It is not what is outside of us that separates us from God. It is not what is outside of us that deserves righteous punishment from a good judge. It is not if we just tighten up a few of our behaviors and our actions, we are good to go. Jesus is intervening here as a wise teacher, bringing clarity and truth, and I would argue joy because of that. My point here is that our problem and what Jesus teaches is our problem is much deeper and much more severe than we can actually comprehend. We think it's just the hands or the mouth. And Jesus is coming in saying, no, this goes way deeper. This is way more extreme than you even realize. It's deeper because we have more than unclean hands. We all, as humans, have hearts that without God's spirit will spew sewage. 
Out of our hearts will come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. And you can testify this because you've seen it or you've done it. And it is way more severe than we realize because we are not animals doing these things. We are sentient, social, creative, image of God humans. Inherent in every single person is the spark of the divine, eternal creator, and yet we are slumming it in broken societies and relationships with broken and evil hearts. This is far deeper and more severe than we can comprehend. And chapter 15 does not give resolution. Jesus just says, it's out of your heart that all this comes. That's why you're defiled. As a speech, maybe doesn't end with great resolution. As a literary decision on Matthew's part, this is brilliant. Because in a sermon like this, we've got, you know, 40 minutes or something. But in a book, he's got 28 chapters. And what he's done here is he's just made me care. This wise teacher walked into the room and said, no, 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 it's lefty. It's lefty. I'm here to save you so much pain and frustration. Would you listen to me? And now he's got my attention. I'm going, okay, what do I need to know? And now I'm tuned in for the rest of the book because I want to know how this ends. And I, don't know, I want to know what your solution to the defilement of my heart is. Jesus, would you teach me? And because we're reading a whole story and a whole piece of literature, I want to point out that the very first chapter starts like this. The introduction of the protagonist goes like this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together sexually, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is a gift of God. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, which is literally translates God saves. You will name this boy God saves, because he will save his people from their sins, their defilements. And all of this took place to fulfill, to come, like to bring to fruition the promises that the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name, they will title him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the, the birth of the protagonist coming on scene, his name is God saves. This Jesus Christ is here to rescue, and he's here profoundly to rescue us at a much deeper and more severe scale than we could imagine. He's not here to rescue us from unwashed hands. He's not here to rescue us from bad oaths. He's here to rescue us from hearts that will spew murder and adultery and sexual immorality and all of that list. This is severe stakes, and his title is God with us. Jesus came to cleanse us, to undefile us by washing us with his presence, washing us through the sacrifice of his own life, his own righteousness, his own nearness. That's why we started with the call to worship from Ezekiel. Straight out of the Old Testament, God's heart has been to sprinkle us, to purify us, to give us new hearts. 
So in Jesus, we are undefiled, and there is nothing that can separate us from God. And even as I say that, there's a part of my heart that is in reserve. There's a part of my heart that says, but Trevor, I'm still getting spiritually spun out when I see the defilement of my heart. Right? I would like to show you a illustration of what is happening in our hearts as we wrestle with belief and unbelief. What this chart shows is, uh, starts on the right-hand side, this course of time. And at a moment in time, there is a diversion. And at this moment, this is the moment of conversion to faith in Christ. Conversion requires a belief and an acceptance that there's a gap between God and me. Why would you believe in Jesus if you didn't think he was here to do anything, right? Conversion is, I believe there's something wrong in my heart that is separate from the goodness and the holiness of God, and Jesus fills that gap. Now, as we continue in life and as we mature as disciples, the part of healthy maturity is a, the top line is this growing awareness of God's holiness. It doesn't mean God's actually getting more holy or God's refining a couple things in his personality. No, God is just this incredible, unfathomable holiness. And we, as we grow in spiritual maturity, see him more and more clearly. So the scale just skyrockets. But also as we become more aware of God's holiness and his absolute beauty and purity, we then become more aware in contrast the genuine defilement that we bring to the table. Oh, it's not just oaths. Oh, it's not just the hands. It's actually in here. It is core to who I am. And it's so much more ugly than I ever realized. And so this sends us on this nosedive of awareness of the reality of our sinfulness. Again, we're probably not growing in sinfulness. In fact, you might actually be growing in holiness, but your awareness of your sinfulness is growing downward. What that leaves us with is this gap between my awareness of God's goodness and my awareness of my sinfulness. And to start off, we start with conversion. And Jesus, the gift of Jesus' redeeming life, his love and his presence has entirely bridged the gap between God's holiness and my sinfulness. But then as we get our feet underneath us and we stabilize a little bit and we start like figuring out the habits and the behaviors and the nice things to say and the amens and we like, oh yeah, I've kind of got this. We, we kind of like hit pause on what the cross does in our life. And now we focus on working really hard to get, become better Christians. Does anyone resonate with this? Now, in the language of this diagram, you'll see that top, the gap between what I believe Jesus has done for me versus my awareness of God's holiness. I try to fill that with religion and moralism and self-justification and legalism and pride. And those are really big, like heavy, daunting words. But if you break down the stuff of our heart, that's what it is. In one word, it is performance. I try to fill what Jesus has mostly done for me with what I need to do for him. Remember Jephthah? I need to add a little bit to sweeten the pot. And then this bottom gap, the gap between what Jesus has done for me and my awareness of the defilement of my heart. And, I need, and now I fill that up and I try to make it back up to God, either through the sense of guilt. Has anyone ever tried to feel real guilty to feel as though like you mean it more? We fill it with guilt, or we have a sense of fear of what will God actually do. We fill it with our shame or our insecurity and our despair. We try to hide or pretend that we're not quite as bad as we are. I'm really afraid of God, so I'm just going to put all this away, right? I'm going to put away all my guilt and just like go sing some worship songs. 
I'm not saying that's bad. But what here that Jesus is saying is, no, this is not a matter of wash your hands, say, keep your oaths. This is a matter of your heart is so defiled, there is nothing you could do to bridge this gap. Would you like to hear my solution? Jesus isn't coming to leave us in despair. He's coming to say, your problem's much worse than you thought, but the solution is also much better than you thought. Would you like to hear? All of Life Church, would you like to hear the solution? Next slide, please. Jesus is here saying, no, your defilement is way worse than you ever thought. That is why I'm not here to cover some of your sins. I'm here to cover a third of your sins. I'm here to just get rid of only this. I am here to cover the entirety. I'm here to cover the murder. I'm here to cover the slander. I'm here to cover the adultery. I'm to cover all the stuff that you could never do. I will cover it right here. This is the voice of Jesus Christ proclaiming purification through his life, death, and resurrection. So as our awareness of God's holiness grows, the awareness of our defilement grows, it does not take us to despair. It takes us to joy. Because in my despair, I go to the king of kings and I say, Jesus, have you covered this? And and he says, your heavenly father's adopted you. He would never kick you out of his house. You're his son. You're his daughter. And Jesus is saying, I'm right now, Romans 8, I am interceding for you. What can separate you from my love? Nothing. Not height, nor depth, nor recession, nor famine, nor disease, nor plunder. Nothing can separate you from my love because this is what I've done for you. I've entirely bridged this gap top to bottom. So you, Christian, as you walk your walk, you will grow in a frustration at the defilement of your heart. A misconstructed solution is I'll just do a little bit better on my plan, right? Next time, I just won't do that. Are there things that need to change? Will Jesus lead you in a path of righteousness? Absolutely. But between you and God, this is our anchor. As we grow in an awareness of the defilement of our hearts, it propels us to worship and joy. Not because the sensation of guilt and shame is easy. Those are very painful sensations. But when we live in those things honestly and we let them move us into relationship with God rather than drive us away into performance. You guys know what I'm talking about? When guilt and shame drive me into isolation, into performance, versus driving me into honesty and a need for forgiveness. This is what Jesus is offering, and this will lead us to worship. It will lead us to freedom. It will lead us to humility. It will lead us to righteousness. And I want to paint a quick picture Because of Jesus, we no longer need to wake up, decide if we want to be close to God or not, and then construct our own system of mediation and then fulfill it during the next 24 hours. Because of Jesus, that is not the pattern we have to live out of. If we are in Christ, when we wake up, We wake up holy and blameless in the presence of God who's already justified us, who has already adopted us. So we don't need to wake up wondering, am I good with God? At the end of the day, I do not need to look backwards and calculate my righteousness. Did I do good enough for God? What do I need to do tomorrow to make it up to him? 
His spirit likely will lead you in conviction to purify your heart. Yes, yes, yes. But we do not need to calculate, am I safe with him? How much does he love me based on my day's performance? And even on the worst days, when the sense of guilt and toxic shame is insurmountable and is crashing over us like waves, our cry is like Peter from chapter 14. Lord, save me. The story of Gennesaret, the end of chapter 14, it shows us how valuable it is to see and receive Jesus for who he really is. Remember the people that ran, proclaimed, he's here, he's here, everyone come. This is an illustration of what it looks like for people to put our faith in the king's diagnosis and the king's solution, and then to run full bore to him in faith. These are people that put down their own insufficient solutions. Right? They put down the crutches. They put down the tinctures. They ran to the king for healing and rescue. Now, if this seems like a good way to live for you, by the way, I'm not saying, like, go get rid of your essential oils and all that stuff. Like, go ahead, keep all that. But if all of this, if this seems like a good way to live for you, I would ask you, back there is a prayer banner. Would you go there? And I'm going to do this a little bit differently all of life. Even if you're a Christian, if this is a good way and you want to live in this, would you go spend time in prayer and worship with brothers and sisters? If you're not a Christian, if this sounds intriguing, you want to learn more, you want to receive it, go there too. But this isn't just for the people who are like really, really down here, right? Because we're all really, really down here, as Jesus is saying. So all of us, would you embrace that? If you would like to pray for someone, would you go back there? If you want prayer, go worship the king together. Now, next week, we're going to see faith at an individual level. We're going to see a Canaanite woman who goes to Jesus to track this down. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you personally that this has been the... the um, text that my heart has got to soak in this week. This beautiful recognition that my heart is way worse than I could have imagined. And you know it. You fully know it and you fully love me and you have fully redeemed me. Father, would you help all of us in all of Life Church and just visitors, would you help us open our eyes to see you more completely, receive you more fully? And would you transform us in righteousness, not so we earn back your grace, but that we, out of a place of grace and joy and worship, begin to look at your commandments and your instructions and follow your voice over what we have constructed. Jesus, would you set us free? Holy Spirit, would you set us free for all the hearts in the room that wrestle with ongoing like, a sense of unforgiveness and guilt, with an ongoing sense of you are not good enough, you need to do more. Spirit, would you come and liberate us and free us from that in the name of Jesus? I proclaim that we are forgiven through the grace of the Son of God, and we do not need to earn this back. Jesus, would you transform us, give us new hearts. Amen.